Let's pause. We're going to be beginning in John chapter 13, but we're actually going to be working through the rest of the Gospel of John this morning. Spending a lot of time in John, a little bit in John chapter 13, a lot of time in John chapter 18, and most of our time in John chapter 21. Let's pray as we go to God's Word this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd of, our, of the sheep. Lord Jesus, you deal with us gently. You deal with us directly. Lord, in your mercy, you confront us with the reality of who we are. Lord, you refuse to let us be unreconciled to the reality of who we are so that we can be reconciled to our Heavenly Father through your great love. Lord, would you do that in us this morning, we pray. Amen. We really wanted to do something for the Lord. We were seeking the Lord and trusting that the Lord would do a great work. And so we devoted ourselves to prayer. We were in college at the time and involved with InterVarsity, and we, as a very small group of Christians on a very secular campus, we were committed not only to praying for our campus, but committed to being a witness for Christ. And due to a variety of things that had happened, there was not much of a presence, Christian presence on campus, and Christians weren't really respected very much or regarded. So we prayed about this, and we were convinced that we wanted to do something that the Lord would draw attention, that we could be a a big witness for Christ in a way that would serve the campus. And the way that we decided that we to do this, and we fully believe the Lord was leading in it and through it, was that we were going to have a conversation. a concert on campus um, with a really prominent Christian group. And so we planned a concert for a group by the name of Cademan's Call. Um, Some of you might be familiar with them. They've fallen off the scene. They were the group that was, um, they were kind of the rising Christian group at the time that was bridging both between Christian music and also secular music. Several of their songs were played on Grey's Anatomy and other, other television shows. And so we had, they might be a little bit like Lauren Daigle today in terms of their rising prominence, if you know that, if you know Lauren Daigle. And so we had arranged that they would have, we would have this concert by Cademan's Call. And it was remarkable the way that the Lord worked. Uh, We just saw the Lord open up doors that were slammed shut. We had an administration that was absolutely opposed to having a Christian concert on campus And on the morning that I went to meet with the upper levels of the administration, there landed on their desk was the campus magazine that gets sent out to all college campuses. And it said, the hottest thing on college campuses right now, Cademan's Call. And two hours later, I showed up in their office and they said, yes, how can we make this happen? It was way more money than we could ever thought to have raised. And we were going to charge students, and the campus came back to us and said, the only way we're going to allow you to have this is if we pay for it and you don't charge anybody to come. And we said, hallelujah. A week before we had this event, we got a notice um, from the, their technical director of the, co- of the group that was coming to finalize arrangements, and it was determined that the power consumption of their speaker and lighting was more power than the entire athletic comp- complex of the entire school. And remarkably, someone who was helping us with this had access to a three-phase generator that happened to be available by the end of the week uh, in order to to produce more power than the entire athletic complex. 
On the night of the concert, when it came, we actually had over 25% of the student body come out to the concert that night. It was incredible the ways that the Lord worked. And in preparation for this event, we had devoted ourselves to prayer. We had, we had set ourselves up. We had done extensive training with all of our small group leaders in order how to answer questions about the Christian faith, common objections. We had set up, arranged a series of speakers to address apologetic issues, questions that people ask about the Christian faith, and all of our small group leaders had been preparing for months to have winsome dialogues over the questions that people wrestle with their faith. So we had this tremendous night on the night of the concert. Over 25% of the student body came out. And at the next week at our gathering, we had no one new come. And in the rest of our small groups that semester, we did not have one new person come to any of our small groups. And despite increased recruitment on campus and everyone inviting and, and laying off, you know, and leveraging off of the excitement of what had happened, following up with nearly everybody who had attended the concert because we made sure that people registered for tickets so we could follow up with them. And despite that, we did not have one person come to anything else the rest of the year. And there was so much confidence, so much excitement, and really the Lord working in remarkable ways, but so much confidence that God was going to do something really big, that God was going to do something that was going to be really different. And there was nothing. I think that experience works out in different areas of our lives as well, that we have expectations for the way that the Lord is going to work, or we have expectations for the way that, the, that we think that the Lord should work, or the way that the Lord should do something, and then it comes out nothing like we expected. I don't know, maybe you were one who was raised in a broken home or in a contentious home, for example, and as you got married, you said, you know what, we're going to be different. We, we are going to be different. We are not going to, our marriage is not going to look like our parents' marriage. We are not going to raise our kids like the ways that our kids were raised up. We want to preserve our kids from the damage that we ourselves experienced. And when we got married together, we said, till death do us part. And then the same patterns begin to get reproduced. And it doesn't go the way that you had expected. In fact, maybe it goes really wrong. And all of this confidence that God was going to do something, and then it turns out nothing like you expected. Let's turn our attention to the Apostle Peter. This morning, I want you to enter into the story with me. And what we're going to do is as we journey through this story, after we examine parts of the story, we'll highlight some key points through it. We come into the story and... Where we are is that Jesus had just had his last supper with his disciples, and partway through the dinner, Jesus gets up, and he takes off his outer garment, and he gets down, and he washes his disciples' feet, and he moves around the room, and he washes James' feet and John's feet, and he washes Judas' feet, knowing that Judas is going to betray him, and he gets to Peter, and he gets to ready to wash Peter's feet, and Peter says, not today, Lord. 
you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. And so Peter, Jesus washes Peter's feet. In the midst of that meal, Jesus says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. And the disciples are baffled. And they're saying, who, who is this going to be? Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. It, it's, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the one who betrays you. And the conversation continues in John chapter 13. Jesus continues on after telling them that one of them would betray them. He says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said, Lord, why can I I not follow you now? Peter's still caught up on this idea that someone said that he was going to betray Jesus and that Jesus was leaving. He's still overwhelmed by this. It was incomprehensible. And so Peter says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. I mean, after walking with Jesus, after seeing Jesus serving so many people, after the disciples have professed their faith in Jesus, after watching Jesus, God Almighty, do this incredible act of washing his disciples' feet, it is incomprehensible in the mind of Peter that anyone could possibly betray Jesus. The way that Matthew records this encounter says Jesus answered him and says, and Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I, I will not deny you. Peter is vehement in his profession, saying, listen, Lord, I am committed to you. In fact, I am more committed than these who are with you. I am I am devoted to you. I am, I am more sincere in my love for you than these who are gathered here. I will be more faithful. I love you. I love you more than these disciples. I will not deny you. I will not leave you. The self-deception of self-confidence. How many times I've heard couples who are in love with each other say, you know, we have a love that is so deep, there is absolutely nothing that could break it. I mean, we both love Jesus, and if that's first, we can get through anything. And say, yes, if that really is first. And Scripture would warn us, Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And if anyone thinks he stands firm, take heed, lest he fall. So Peter gives this declaration, and Jesus turns to him, and he says, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I imagine that the rest of the night, what was, I wonder what was going through Peter's mind. I imagine it was something like this that Peter is saying, he said I was going to deny Jesus three times. I'm not going to deny Jesus. I'm going to prove him wrong. Others may leave him, but I'm not going to leave him. And this brings us to our first application. 
which be succinctly stated in James. James says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do we do with that? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So Peter declares that Jesus, that he will not deny Jesus. And so what happens next is when he had spoken these words, Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And as they entered into that garden, Jesus says to his disciples, watch with me, pray with me, pray that you would not fall into temptation. And Jesus begins to pray, and he prays, and sweat drops of blood begin to fall from his forehead as he cries out, Father, not my will, but your will be done, knowing that he is headed towards the cross. And Peter and the other disciples fall asleep. While they're in the garden, this also happens. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a, hand, a band of soldiers... And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went, and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And they come in there, they looked for who Jesus is. Judas betrays them with a kiss. And Jesus says to them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Let the other, let the other disciples go. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, and he cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And Luke records that Jesus then immediately healed Malchus's ear. The sword that Peter had was most likely a Roman short sword. It would have been called a gladius, one that you could have hid underneath your cloak, hidden in personal garment. The nature of the sword is that the sword was used for stabbing and not for slicing. And so what this indicates is that when Peter lunged forward, he wasn't trying to engage in a sword fight. He was trying to run his short sword through this guy's head. And he dodged slightly, and instead of killing him, he just sliced off his ear. But we have to appreciate Peter here. I mean, this was Peter's moment. I mean, this is when Peter was doing what he said he was going to do. He said he would not deny Jesus. He said that he would fight and that he would lay down his life for Jesus. And here is Peter, and he is going to fight, and he is going to die. And he knows that it's against the odds. The Roman soldiers are gathered around. There are Roman soldiers who are gathered together. But he is with Jesus. Who cares? He is following Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. And a moment later, Peter is standing there, and he sees the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews, they arrest Jesus, and they bind him, and they lead him off, and they lead him away. Have you ever had a Peter moment? You know, the, each generation, there comes this time when, when people are, are zealous. 
You know, they're zealous for the Lord. Maybe they're even being very faithful Christians, and they step, step out in their zealousness. They step out in their confidence. They step out to follow Jesus and maybe do so in a really great act of faith. But it doesn't go the way that they're expected, and it feels like it ends with them watching Jesus be bound and arrested and carried off into captivity. And it feels like you're standing there holding your short sword and being like, but Jesus, I thought we were going to conquer the world. And you watch him be arrested and taken away. This is the experience of countless pastors and church planners and missionaries who give up a lot to go serve the Lord going to go out and plant a church, in three years they're going to plant another church because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then they get on the field and they begin to serve and the whole thing falls apart. And there's this sense that like, wait a second, Lord, we, we did all this. We left things. We're following you, Jesus. And they're standing there holding their short sword and Jesus is bound and it appears that he's rest taken away. How many times have I heard parents say, This is true. How many times have I heard parents say, you know what, we're the ones who are going to do it right. Or people who have kids and who, who, when their kids begin to have trouble, look back and they say, I don't understand. We were the ones who did it right. We were the ones who took the admonition to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We were the ones who took this seriously. And look at where my kids are right now. And it feels like you're standing there holding your short sword and being like, Jesus, I thought we, I thought we were going to be different. I, I thought this was going to go a different way than this. Or maybe it's in your family. In your family sacrifice, you made particular acts of faith to follow Jesus. Maybe you went out and started, started a ministry. I don't know. Maybe you brought someone into your home. And you have this vision of this glorious picture of redemption and having Thanksgiving like Norman Rockwell, right, sitting around the table. And it's a disaster. And you're like, but, but, but Lord, I, I thought we were going to conquer. I thought this was going to be totally different. Or maybe in your own Christian life that you look around And as you have grown up and you decide to take your Christian faith seriously, you begin to own it for yourself, and you look at the church, and you look at the hypocrisy in the church, and you see things that are going wrong, and see things that have been done wrong, and you say, you know what? You know what? I'm going to be the one who God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to be the one who is going to run the race before me. I'm going to run this race, and not only am I going to run it, but I'm going to win it. And maybe I won't come in first, but you better believe I'm going to meddle. And my house in heaven is going to be a little bit bigger than everybody else's. Because I take this seriously. And so that leads to our second application is that like Peter, the foundation of our faith cannot be, and it must not be, our zeal or our determination. The foundation of our faith cannot be our zeal or our own confidence of our faith or our own determination, because if it is out of God's love for you, out of his mercy for you, if it is, you will fail. And it will be very painful. 
And it will feel like you are standing and you are watching Jesus be arrested and bound and led away. And you'll feel like you are standing there with your short sword in your hand and saying, wait a second, I am so confused. I don't understand. We were going to be the ones who were different. The foundation of your faith cannot be, indeed it must not be, your zeal and confidence. And what happens with Peter is that when Peter's service to Jesus falls apart, when Peter's expectations of Jesus and how Jesus is supposed to work falls apart, so does Peter. Shortly thereafter, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That would be the disciple John who wrote this book. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, and so did the other disciple who was known to the high priest. And so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now notice the connection. John has access into the temple. John goes to the servant girl, and he says to the servant girl, see that guy over here? He's with me. Let's go in. It was obvious that John was a follower of Jesus. He was known as one of the ones who was a follower of Jesus. The servant girl is being identified that Peter is the one who was associated with John, who is known as a follower of Jesus. But here's what happened. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter was also with them. Was it cowardice on Peter's part, or did he just deem that this girl was just too insignificant? Whatever it was, Peter's pattern continued, because in the next verse, in chapter 20, verse 25, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, and he said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Now, do you think he would know who it was that cut off his relative's ear? Asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denied it, and the other gospel accounts state that Peter called curses upon himself. And at once... The rooster crowed, the way that Luke records this, he says this, and when the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and he looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. bitterly. And in just a matter of a very few hours, the incomprehensible became sensible. Who could ever do this? That which was unthinkable became correct. And so Peter leaves and he goes out into the darkness of the night alone, weeping bitterly. And this reveals our third application. Is that the crises in our life and the failure in our life exposes to us our allegiance, our our allegiances is that when we face failure, when we face big failure, it exposes what we, our greatest allegiance. And God, I believe, allows us to go through this to expose to us, undeniably, what our allegiances truly are. 
After this, in the sequence of Jesus' final week, Peter drops from the storyline. He's not present in the next couple chapters. And the next time that Peter is mentioned, he's mentioned in John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, what happens is that some of the women, after Jesus' death on the cross, after his trial, his death on the cross, his burial, three days later, some of the women go to the tomb in order to point anointment on Jesus And they come to the tomb and the stone is rolled away and the linen cloth is not there. And there is an angel who says to them, he is not here, he is risen. They meet Jesus in the garden and these women run back and they tell the disciples. And the next time we encounter Peter is that Peter is running to the tomb. He is running to the tomb to see if it truly is empty. And Peter runs to the tomb and he gets to the tomb second. Because Peter is bad at running. I always like Peter. (laughs) And he gets to the tomb, and he sees the empty tomb, and he sees the empty linens, and he tries to make sense of this. And so he and the other disciple, who immediately believed, go back, and they gather together, and they tell the other disciples that it is, as the women had said, that the tomb was empty, that the linen cloths are there. And sometime later, while they're there, as they're having dinner, Jesus appears in the room in the midst of them. He is there just for a short time. Thomas is not with him, and Jesus leaves after a short time. Then they are gathered together again. This time Thomas is with them, and Jesus appears. And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, you who don't believe, put your hands in my side. Touch my hands. See that it is truly I. Thomas, don't doubt. You can believe. But Peter's not mentioned in either of those accounts other than the fact that he is in the midst of the disciples. And so after this encounter with Peter, Peter and the disciples decide that they're going to go fishing. Trying to wonder what they do, they decide to go fishing. And as they're out fishing, they're not catching a whole lot of fish. And someone calls to them from shore and says to them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And they immediately have a huge haul of fish. And John says to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter puts on all of his clothes and he jumps in the water and he swims to shore and he leaves the other guys in the boat to pull in this huge catch of fish. And here's what happens next. It says, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So what happens is that Peter jumped out of the boat, he swam to the shore, he sees Jesus, by this time the boat comes ashore, and he says, go get me one of those fish. Now Jesus already had breakfast, but he says, go get me one of those fish. And so Peter trudges back to the boat, and he goes in, and he grabs a large fish from this miraculous catch of fish, and he picks one of these large fish up, and he brings it back. Now, do you know when the last time it was that the apostle Peter had a miraculous catch of fish? It was, there was a time that they had been fishing all night long. And after fishing all night long, they were mending their nets, and Jesus got in their boat and began to teach from shore. And Jesus turned to them, and he said to them, set out into the deep and cast your nets. And they had not caught any fish. And Peter said to them, Master, we have fished all night, and we have caught nothing. 
But at your word, we will do so. And they go out and they have this enormous catch of fish. And the boat begins to list because the catch of fish is so huge. And Peter falls down before the Lord and he says, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. For from now on, you will be catching men. For I have made you a fisher of men. And so Peter, having swam to Jesus, then goes back, and he goes back to the boat, and he grabs a large fish after this miraculous catch of fish. The last time this was happened was Peter had recognized the depth of his sinfulness and the need of Jesus Christ, that he was the Lord, and that the Lord Jesus had taken him and commissioned him not to be a fisher of fish, but to become a fisher of men. So he comes back, and he's carrying this fish. And Jesus is sitting there at a charcoal fire. Is that when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out of it and bread. There was another time that the apostle Peter was around a charcoal fire. And on this morning, he is gathered with Jesus at a charcoal fire. Jesus made a fire not from wood. He did not make a fire from driftwood, but he made a fire from charcoal. You know how charcoal smells so distinctly different than a wood fire? Like when you're grilling in the back deck and you smell other people grilling, you know if someone is grilling with charcoal, right? And Jesus is on the shore of the sea, and he, he is, has this charcoal fire, and he's having a cooking these fish with, char- with charcoal. And the only other time in the entire New Testament that the word charcoal is used is in chapter 18, when the servants and officers had gathered around a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was also with them. And they said to him, aren't you also with them? And the smell of the charcoal was around them. And Peter says, I swear to you, it was not. I do not know the man. And so he gathers them. As Peter carries up his miraculous extra-large fish, and he comes up upon this charcoal fire, and Jesus looks at them across the fire, and Jesus says to them, Come. Have some breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They all knew it was the Lord. (laughs) Do you know who it is? I think it's him. (laughs) And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to him. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What Jesus does is that he cares for them. Right? He lets it soak in for Peter. Peter who has this miraculous catch of fish. Peter, the one who had professed, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter, who the Lord said to him, I will make you not a fisher of fish, but I will make you a fisher of men. He has Peter eating breakfast, smelling the charcoal. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs. 
And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Other translations say Peter was hurt. Peter was grieved. Peter was sorrowful because Jesus had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. And you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And the ancient church historian Tertullian records that Peter was indeed crucified. However, when he was going to his crucifixion, Tertullian records that Peter said that he was unworthy to be, die in the same manner that his Lord was. So Peter, Tertullian records, was crucified upside down. And so Jesus takes Peter and he recounts to Peter the setting. He sets up the setting with the charcoal fire. He recounts the setting of Peter's confession and his, com- and his commission to serve others. Jesus reiterates the threefold form of Peter's denial, saying, Peter, Peter, you who said, even if everyone else denies you, I never will, Lord. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Are you so confident still, Peter? Peter, you denied me three times. Peter, I'm asking you three times. Peter, before you spoke in pride and in arrogance, I love you more than these. Peter, do you really love me more than these? And Jesus wants Peter to see himself clearly. And Jesus wants us to see ourselves clearly. You see, our culture and our own hearts will give you many, many ways out of this experience, right? I mean, yes, you know, what you did was wrong, but it wasn't really your fault. I mean, yes, what you did was wrong, but, you know, you were raised in a home where your parents didn't love you the way that you needed to be loved. Your spouse didn't care for you the way that you needed to be cared for. I mean, you can't help the way that you are. Anybody else wouldn't have done this as well as you did if you had the circumstances that you had. Our culture will give many, many ways out. And this leads to our fourth application which is unless we see ourselves for who we really are, we cannot see Jesus for who he truly is. For a relationship with Jesus begins where the excuses end. And my greatest concern this morning, those of you who have gathered here today who are in the greatest spiritual danger, are not those of you who are overwhelmed by your failures in life. It is not those of you who are overwhelmed but by your unworthiness. For to you, Jesus would say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of the God. 
To you, Jesus says, I suffered on the cross to remove your guilt and your shame. I suffered on the cross as the one who was unworthy so that your unworthiness would be taken away. Lift your head. You are forgiven. And because of me, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, neither angels nor demons, neither things present nor things to come, neither or anything else can separate you from my love, and I will not abandon you, and I will not forsake you. But those who are in the greatest spiritual danger are those of you who truly think that you are better than these. That you really believe that you're better than other Christians. That you really believe that you are the Christian parents, for example, who are going to take the responsibility to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that you are going to do so more than these. That you're the one who is committed to the truth more than these. That you're the one who's going to be committed to reading the Bible, that you're going to be committed to, to praying more than these. It wasn't that long ago, after a worship service, there was someone who'd been attending for a while. They were from out of town. They had been attending for a while, and they said to me, they said, you know what, we like coming here because it's clear that the truth is preached, but, you know, you, know, you really need to reevaluate your music. I mean, well, I don't know. I guess, I guess the only way you're able to attract people these days is if you incorporate such secular godless music into your worship services the way that you do. And not long after that, that I've had other conversations where other people had said, had said something like this. They had said, well, you know, we like being here, but your church is just so traditional. But I guess that's the way that you guys have to be since you're a part of the denomination and you have to go along and you can't question your history. Are you so certain that you like to really worship more than these? And each generation, when it comes to issues of justice, you know, the older generation is asking the younger generation, why do they have no concern for the unborn? Why is there no concern among this? And the younger generation is questioning the older generation. Why is there no concern for the poor? Why is there no concern for the oppressed? Why is there no concern for the sojourner who dwells among you? And to both, are you so certain that you know the heart of God more than these? And this leads to our fifth application, is that you cannot look at Jesus Christ when you are so consumed with looking at yourself. Is that you cannot look at Jesus when you are so consumed with comparing yourself with everybody else and ranking yourself above everybody else. And so my greatest concern and those in greatest danger are those of you who truly think that you love Jesus more than these. And our Lord loves us too much to be unreconciled to the reality of who we are. He loves us too much to leave us unreconciled to the reality of who we are. And this is not cruel. This is an act of his mercy. And it may be a severe mercy. But it is a mercy that the Lord brings into our lives so that you would get to the place of Peter. So that you would get to the place of Peter and you would say, 
And Jesus would say to you, do you love me more than these? That he would say, Lord, you know everything. You know my pride. You know my arrogance. You know my boasting. You know the way that I compare myself to other people to justify myself, to make myself feel better. Lord, you know everything. You know the shame. You know the things that I hide. Lord, you know everything, and you know everything about me, and you know all of my guilt, and you know all of my sin. You know everything. And I'm humbled to say it. But you know also that I love you. And when the Lord Jesus in his mercy brings us to this point of not only knowing and experiencing his love, of plunging us into the depth not only of our own sinfulness, but into the depth and wonder of his grace, and you profess your love for Christ without qualification, the amazing thing that Jesus does is that Jesus does not discard you. He forgives you. He doesn't cancel you. Rather, he commissions you. And he places you in the midst of the these. He places you in the midst of God's sheep. And he places you in the midst of God's lambs. And he places you in the midst of God's people with God's sheep. And he places you with God's lamb so that instead of judging them, instead of condemning them, instead of comparing yourself to them, that you would be one who feeds them. That you would be one who tends Jesus' sheep. That you would be one who cares for the weak and the vulnerable that you would be one who encourages and nurtures those who need to be reconciled to the reality of their own heart so that they can be reconciled to the God who loves them through Jesus Christ. And he sends you into this work to participate in caring for those for whom he died, for those whom he bought with his own blood. And so it is. That in his mercy and in his love, Jesus will confront us with ourselves. He will confront us with ourselves so that we will stop looking at ourselves, so that we will stop comparing ourselves to others, so that we will look to Jesus Christ, who alone is the author and perfecter of our faith, so we will look to Jesus Christ and experience, not just know it, not just know it in our head, not just state it in propositions, so that we will experience the depth of his love for us personally. And that by knowing his love, we will then take his love and feed others with it. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, when we come before you, we can say, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a sinful man. But you, Lord Jesus, on the cross, through your death on the cross, you have taken away my sin, you have taken away our guilt and shame. 
and you have taken it away so that we would live not wallowing in our guilt, not wallowing in our shame, not trying to make excuses for it, but that we would live in the freedom as a child of God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So Lord Jesus, would you set us free to know that what defines us is who you say that we are, that you are the one who has made us your own, that you have set us free from our guilt and shame, that you have set us free to know you, to love you, and to share your love with others. Lord, would you do that in us for your glory, we pray. Amen.